0: Why would you take people today who are coming from a historical group, a class of people who have not known what to do with this institution called money, experimenting with interest rate, experimenting with Printing money, experimenting, and now there's a new technology in what you're just like. Oh, don't worry, we're going to start using this to 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 make even more tools to try to to try to manipulate the money and what we can do to the supply even more. It's like you guys need to quit trying to manipulate the supply and let go of the control because it hasn't. You're trying hard. You're squeezing, squeezing harder. And it's, it's, it looks ridiculous. And it looks ridiculous to anyone who understands what blockchain technology is, because you're ha- you have a technology that's removed the need for trust and you have other people creating digital ledgers. Like Ryan said, it's not, it, the digital ledger isn't the achievement. It's using digital ledgers in a secure, trustless, decentralized way that's the achievement. Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty.
1: This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan, who are experts in their field. We're calling today's episode Before Blockchain. Competing Visions of Monetary Order. Without further ado, Episode 7 of Specific Knowledge. All right, guys, welcome. Episode 7, before blockchain, we're talking about competing visions of monetary order. Lucas and Ryan, how are you guys doing? I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm doing well, Lucas. I'm doing well, brother. It's always good to hang out with you guys and talk markets. Yeah, I'm really excited. We have, uh, I think, re- two really good articles to go off of today. The theme to set the stage. There's a, a lot of excitement in cryptocurrency today, and it's it's you know we we talk on this show about how it's going to change the world, change monetary policy, monetary order, economies, all this stuff. But we thought it was important today to. Look back at the past and analyze previous economies, previous visions for monetary order, and and how things were actually structured for a while. You know, on the heels of uh, 50 years ago to what 50 years on the 15th, so about four, three or four days ago, uh, it was a 50th year anniversary of the uh, let's call it the abolition of the the gold backed dollar, and we'll get into that and how that's maybe not even uh, true, but. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to look at two articles today. One is on the London School of Economics and their abolition of the Hayek Society. Of course, Friedrich Hayek is who the, the namesake of this podcast uh, is dedicated to, specific knowledge. And um, then we'll be t- discussing the uh, the end of Brentwood and how it shows us more about where we're going than where we've been. So really excited to, uh, to kick it off. Uh, we'll start with the Hayek Society. And um, I know Ryan, you brought this article to us, so if you'd uh, like to kick it off, I think uh, I think we can get going.
2: All right, yeah, I'd love to. So at the London School of Economics, there's a, a student group called the the LSE Class War. It's it's a campaign they're, that they're launching. It's and they're looking for a few few changes to be made at their school. They want to limit the number of of students who are enrolled that are coming from private schools, and they uh, they want to have an ethnic minority quota in their, in the hiring of the academics. They're, they're looking to have a, a, David Graeber lecture series, which I thought, you know, one thing that I'm not opposed to on their list. Yes. And, <laughs> and they have, but their fourth demand is the one that has my attention and is relevant to our, our discussion. And they're calling for the, the end of the dissolution of the Hayek society. And this is, this is for the reason of that they're saying that they want to support the marginalized students and that these ideas, these free market fundamentalist ideas, promote the oppression of the working class and, and the marginalized. Yeah, I think there's a few issues there. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the reason is, is they, they claim that, 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 that Hayek's ideas promote um, some kind of an oppressive world, right? They, they, they link capitalism to oppression. And they, and this is a student group, and they have they have interest in social justice. So there's also a, a minority angle. There there's they're concerned that minority rights aren't aren't um aren't protected or or valued under capitalism. So the pushback to that is to say, well, if you look at the data on whether we'll just take the the uh, working class angle first, and we then we can go to the to the racial and the, eth- the ethnicity angle, but just in terms of raw economics we've uh halved the global poverty level since 1990. so that's that's what uh, a little about 30 years 31 years and the global poverty level is halved it's never there's never been a time in in history where where there's been that kind of progress we're talking about breakneck progress that you know 50 or 60 years ago might have seemed impossible or utopian right and then there's a lot of other metrics to look at. There's if you you can you can find these, these metrics on your own. Uh, I think coordination problem is a blog that has a lot of this data, and there's met, there's sh- uh, all kinds of tables showing the labor costs that it takes to acquire certain goods, and it, and it tracks this cost over time. And there's been massive decreases in the amount of hours that it takes to acquire an automobile or to acquire a microwave or a an oven or a refrigerator or a, TV, a television or, um, you know, fill in the blank a house. Right. So you hear, we hear a lot about inequality and in, and in terms of nominal inequality and, and it is an issue. So it's not, like, I'm not trying to say that's not an issue, but, but inequality is not, is not the only story because it's based in nominal uh, dimension. Right. So you're looking at, well, this person made a million dollars, but this person only made $60,000. Right. So it's, it's mass. So you're looking, you're caught up on nominal values and you can, and, and if you look at the only the nominal, then it is clear that the rich are getting richer and pulling away from everyone else. But if you look at, if you go beyond the nominal and look at the real cost to acquire goods and services and how much income people make in real terms over year over year, time over time. And it's clear that it's getting better for the poor vastly. So I mean, people poor people have iPhones and they have uh, TVs and they have a lot of things that if you go into a uh, working class person's home, they don't, ha- it's not, it's not like, Uh, working class people don't have access to the internet or don't have access to computers or phones or TVs or any of the modern technological things that are, that are coming out that most people have is they they keep getting cheaper and cheaper right now there. It's true that, that the rich people have nicer versions of these things. Right. And that's, and that's true. There's, but there's always been luxury goods. That's, if you go back uh, 500 years ago to the era of monarchy, there was luxury goods, but what was different about that time and this time, is that the status of the poor in real terms was stagnant, whereas in our time, the the status of the poor keeps rising. It's such that we could say we've halved their number of global uh, have the global poverty levels in 1990. So that's you know half it, half those people have been moved into the higher uh, income brackets, right? And so if you go back 500 years ago, that would have been impossible. The, the luxury goods existed and the inequality was there, but this but this mechanism for lifting up the masses in real terms was never there, was not there. And if you weren't plugged in with the elite, your living standards were no, did not change. Your, your kids and their kids and their kids would all, you it would be flat. You would not expect your kids to be better off than you were. Whereas now in our society, if your kids aren't better off than you are, then there's something that's gone wrong because there's been every opportunity for that. And so that's, I don't want to go on too long, but that's that's the first point is that the economics don't back this up. And the second point is kind of similar. But if you but if you look at the like, say, life expectancy by race in the United States, black people have had their life expectancy grow and, and actually Matt, come closer to closing the gap that was there, say, 100 years ago between white people. The gap's narrowed. There's still somewhat of a gap, but but the gap is narrowed by a massive amount. So if our market economy was so at odds with the interests of the, of the ethnic marginalized communities, then you wouldn't see that kind of change. Right. And there's a lot of others you can look at. You can look at household wealth, home ownership, number of people graduating from school. Uh, You can look at uh, secondary education. You can look at life expectancy. There's a lot of metrics and all of them show a convergence amongst the races, which doesn't match this, this criticism.
1: There's also a criticism to be had. Um, this doesn't really this is not in line with what Hayek's writing uh, is about. and if, if you guys would want to touch on that, I think that'd be um, probably obviously this is great data to, to have and to discuss and to back up the, the claims are, are faulty, but if th- this is the Hayek society and they're coming after it for things that Hayek
2: is clearly written to the contrary. Yes, that's right. Hayek is not a market fundamentalist. I mean, he was definitely somebody who supported markets and private property. But if you go through his road to serfdom, he, in multiple places, he calls for things like uh, worker safety regulations. He calls for uh, different uh, regulations on poisons. And and, and, and and like I guess it would be the equivalent of like an FDA to make sure that the, the things people are ingesting are poison-free. He didn't use those words, but he, he talks about poisons. He talks about um, a social safety net as well, which, and he, and he leaves that open. So you can, you can fill in your, you know, food stamps and unemployment insurance and welfare checks and, you know, mothers with uh, needy children and all of it, you know, it's all part of it, but he does put an asterisk on this. He says that these programs are, are not at odds with, with freedom or with markets or with private property or capitalism. And they are desirable as far as they go, but they, but he, he, he maintains that they should be designed such that they do not, that they do not make competition ineffective. So that's a way of saying, let's design these systems such that they don't have a whole bunch of internal inconsistencies and, and poor incentives and and moral hazard and things. So, so it's a point, but, but, but to say that he's a market fund, that was the criticism is that he's a free market fundamentalist. And, And it's really not true. I mean, some that would apply to Rothbard. Rothbard wanted to have the market care, take care of everything. He he would have the police be a, a firm you'd hire. He would have um, no no government whatsoever. There'd be no voting. It, it was a complete private society where everything that was that was a service that you would that you would look to the government to provide, it was provided by a market in a market setting with by a competitive in a competitive environment. If there was a Rothbard society at LSE, then I could see okay the market fundamentalist critique has some merit to it because he he did he didn't make those arguments, but Hayek, it's just, it's just not even, it's not even accurate to paint him in that brush. Cause he specifically mentions that there is a role for the government to provide for the common good. And so it's just really as a head scratcher, it's its like, well, are you guys arguing against Hayek? Do you have a problem with Hayek or do you have a problem with what people have told you that Hayek is what he believes? Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's more what we're dealing with. Yeah. Spot on. Uh, continuing, continuing off
0: what you said uh Devin earlier about this, not being high and, and going with what you said, Ryan, that continuing with that asterisk on needing to make concessions for mark for, for state intervention on certain markets, if necessary, as, as long as there's wink, wink, nudge, nudge opportunity for competition. So if they aren't ser- serving the needs of people, they can be made better or removed. But I would say that, you know, I like uh, it reminds me of when you, you start going into script, exegesis of the scripture, you don't read the the Torah or the Bible from the perspective of a modern culture and a modern Republic and a democracy and a constitution of people of electricity and, and and running water and sewage. When you look at a document that was written by nomadic people that stared at the stars all day long, long before. So it's important to read documents in their context. When Hayek was, was writing for things. uh, I think many people in these uh, university societies they're they come from very entitled, uh, mindsets of their idea of the freedoms that are just innate that people are born with. I mean, you have to remember back when Hayek was writing, we're talking about the before the bra burning era of the 1970s for, for, for the liberation of women to vote, right? I mean, we're, we're literally have made leaps and bounds of what people are just raised thinking that everyone just agrees that all people deserve these kinds of fundamental rights or or liberties and freedoms. Uh, the, the very fact that they call the, the dissolution of the Hayeks, society and other societies that they feel oppress working-class people. Well, Hayek was one of the uh, thinkers, the philosophers to make groundbreaking headway to to quit classifying people as working, working like who who, who came up who's the working class? I mean, we pretty much all uh, people in a, in, a, in an economy for the most part are are working class. <laughs> we all we all work and are some are, are performing some function in the capital market in the modern economy, some service, some need. And for him, it was more just about understanding the knowledge that uh, that that plays in society, how we how we form institutions and how efficient they are with knowledge uh, being separate and, and having the limitations that we do and, and that it does and sharing that knowledge. So you know what I what I think of with Hayek, it was about freedom from oppression, not working classes for some other class. It was really just everyone was slaving away and trying to find a way to make ends meet. And it was it was understanding more of having people to have more choice, but then freedom from oppression meant all people were working class and most of their decisions were made by hierarchies before then, whether you were in the U.S. or you were a a serf Uh, And and Europe or somewhere else, you weren't the decision makers. So these early philosophers were saying, hey, you know what, giving people freedom and allowing them to make decisions is actually better off so that people are very misunderstanding of of Hayek uh, when they're uh, talking about the, the role that choice plays in oppression? Because right now it seems like people, instead of freedom from oppression, people are, are trying to find some sort of freedom from poverty or freedom from want. And they've changed the narrative where if you see a disparity, that that's not right and we should be free of that disparity and so it, it doesn't look at the uh, the role that that choice plays and like ryan said earlier it's like sure there may be a disparity but have you noticed how everyone has air conditioning you know sure somebody maybe uh you know have a bigger house with air conditioning but look look how many more people are not suffering in the heat throughout the summertime
2: and it's not yeah. like big homes and luxury palaces weren't a thing you know a thousand years ago that's what i always go back to it's like yeah you, there is inequality but there's always been inequality. There hasn't always been an indoor air conditioning and indoor plumbing. So let's let's see that being a novel thing to, to focus on and not not the inequality, right?
0: But my, my my yeah, exactly. My thing was to say that I feel from my understanding what what in his time when it was written, that freedom was a freedom from oppression. A freedom from oppression that came from whatever institutions and hierarchies men had put into power. And the solution to him was allowing individuals to have free, more free choice and more free will. And it was, the funny thing was, it was empowering to people of all genders and all races and all beliefs. Because uh, if you uh, look and follow his line of thinking it was that all individuals are basically faced
2: with the same limitations, and 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 yeah, it was very much a a flattening worldview. There's not a lot of room for hi- hierarchy in a world where information is decentralized and specific to time and place and
0: not not even placing a supreme value on, on any class of wants. He, he spread out said that all people have uh, wants that are changing subjective preferences that that fall follow that line of thinking. So Mm -hmm. there, there's no preference put on some groups wants or, or needs over another, if that were to exist.
2: And you know, it's funny because these, this criticism about markets and capitalism being a tool for oppressing marginalized groups, it's actually kind of reversed because the government itself has been a great tool of separation and division over the years. You can look; I mean, I, I'm, look, I'm remembering a uh, an article I read a number of years ago about a a, uh, a the move to segregate a certain city and the transportation services of that city. And there was a bus a bus company that did not want to to, to segregate, but they this was a state. A law they they were forced to but they didn't want to because it was going to harm their well i don't know if they had any what their motivations were in terms of their ethics but but they knew that they, it was going to harm their bottom line it was unprofitable for them uh yeah right i think that was that's the
1: montgomery alabama bus boycott correct
2: yeah that sounds right yeah that sounds right and yep. that was in uh ooh, the 50s the 50s uh, yeah. yeah 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 okay but so yeah, it's just a story about how the market and the private firm did not want to segregate, and they had to be forced into it, right? Which is contrary to what you're, what we're told is that capitalism and markets on their own are going to uh, not do any, not going to be conducive to egalitarian goals or or a, or a diverse society that comes together. And it's funny because in the if you look if you go to any country, you you can go to any. You can go to Afghanistan. You can go to Iran. Well, I mean I don't know about Afghanistan today but you know a few weeks <laughs> a little, ago little or maybe different. in a, in a yeah. few weeks from now when things are not as hairy if you want to find the place where all the sects and all the religious groups don't fight and get along just go to the market where the trading happens that's where you'll see women and men and people from different religions and different cultures and different ethnicities all interacting and trading and and it's and this is not just in a, this is not an anomaly this is something that's been cited and acknowledged Along for a very long time in various different places, and so th- I just feel like each one of your points is just completely backwards, <laughs> and that's my uh, that's my take on it. It's just it's just backwards that markets actually help us bring us together, take diversity and and separation and unify us, and it, and we, and then it does it not by feeding on our our fears, but actually bringing us in, in closer to interaction with people we don't might not otherwise interact with. And then through that interaction, we, they become our friends, right? Our, our customers and our, our, the firms that we patronize through repeated interaction, they actually become our friends. We, you go from strangers to allies to friends. And all this happens in a market. And it happens beyond the market too in society, but, it, but it's definitely part of the market, right? Yeah. One way, one way that happens, or the main way, and we'll probably talk about this, I'm sure, many
0: times over. But is the role and function prices play? Because uh, that's basically been the age-old debate in, in era of trying to discover, and where the branch of Austrian economics was was born from, uh, understanding um, what what are the mechanisms, what are the choices, what what are the actions in nature and life between men that that create prices what where, where are they formed from because it's not something that people just understand or understood it's not something that's intuitive and it's not something that's inherent and surely as we'll talk it's not something that's objective there's no such thing as uh this idea this objective price of any any good at any point in time and and what you were saying um earlier how it brings people together you know, it's, it's when people can look at a price and understand that price is a language price is a language that helps people communicate from different cultures, from different nationalities, different, whatever, different languages, beliefs, you fill it in, you go down to the, to the shopping aisle and you look at bread and eggs, or you go look at, you know, water or lumber and steel Those things, that price helps you communicate with all these different people in the world that are looking to satisfy the same similar needs and that you don't have to speak the same language, you don't have to uh, have similar similar beliefs. And yet you can look at this price and make a decision together in the same place. And it's equalizing because the price doesn't say, oh, hey, are you Catholic? Oh, hey, are you this? The price just says, I'm a price. And that's one thing that people love about markets is is that the market's equalizing in that sense. No, no, yeah. I just want to jump in. I, I that. think that's a
1: very good point. And it actually is a pretty cool segue that uh, you know there is a point where price was fixed And that's between the years 1834 and 1933, when the price of gold was fixed by the United States to $20.67 per ounce. I think we'll just lay out some really quick uh, timelines uh, before we get into the second topic uh, that we wanted to discuss. In 1834, the US fixes the price of gold. Um, In 1933, um, it becomes illegal to. Trade your money in for gold, your U.S. dollar, uh, and then 1944 rolls around, and you have the Bretton Woods agreements that essentially peg the world's currency to the U.S. dollar, which is backed by gold. So there's this, and, and we'll we'll talk about how that's uh, that's flawed. Uh, maybe we'll even touch on how we think there there are some cryptocurrencies that are doing what this tried to do, but better. Um, just, to, just to add some kind of reference. But yeah, guys, let's go from there. I know, Ryan, you had another great article. You seem to be reading a lot more than we are. But um, <laughs> if you'd want to highlight what that article uh, was about and, and to get us going, that'd be great.
2: Yeah. So the article I found was a article by Larry White. I believe that's who it was. Yeah. And uh, he he kind of discusses the contribution of Jacques Rueff. He was a, an awesome economist, French economist. And his insight was that the, the Bretton Woods Agreement had some fatal flaws, that internal contradictions that set the stage for its collapse. And before we get into that, I'd like to just touch on what the classical gold standard was, which is what came before. And you you hinted you hinted or you talked about it. It was yeah. uh, it was started in the 18 what 1840s. 30, 30, 34,
1: 30, went 34. 90,
2: 1933. 33, yes. Yeah. So that was. That was when gold was defined as, a, as $20, right? I believe $20 an ounce. And this was the period of where, where gold itself circulated, right? So yes, there was paper notes that were redeemed in gold that circulated, but it was also common for people to actually have coins. They'd walk around and they'd hear them jangle in their pockets and they'd pay with them and they'd circulate. And people would go to the bank and trade their notes in for coins. And this was a, this was a whole thing. And, it, and this was global, so this, this brought every country that used gold money into conversation together and they were on the same standard. So it made things like sending money in internationally very easy, made foreign, uh, it made foreign commerce easy, it facilitated commerce. And then there's one key thing that the classical gold standard did that the Bretton Woods standard did not do. And this is going to make, make it clear what the contradiction inside of that system was that brought it brought its end. So the classical gold standard, there was uh, there was this recognition that it had this self regulating principle built into it. David Hume called it the specie flow mechanism, and what it basically was was this idea that if a nation on the gold standard printed too much paper money up uh, and inflated their currency, inevitably these dollars would flow overseas, and and be used in foreign trade to acquire goods and services from our trading partners. And as those goods crossed borders, the gold would, would flow from our border to theirs, right? And if, and if we ever were to import more money, or I'm sorry, import more goods and services than we could afford through our, from our exports, then this outflow of gold would cre- create this deflationary dynamic where prices in the United States would fall because of the deflation, because of the gold outflow and then that would make exports from the united states more attractive for our foreign traders for our foreign trade partners so they would then take advantage of our low prices and buy up our cheap goods and services which would have an which would mean an inflow of gold into our into our economy so this this was a natural balancing um, the the gold, gold flowing overseas and then kicking off deflations was a natural check on having a trade deficit, which is what people talk about now. The trade deficit is so high. We, we're importing so much more than we're exporting. And well, this, this would not have been possible indefinitely under the classical gold standard because of this deflationary check that we call the, the price, uh, the specie price flow mechanism. <laughs> so this was key. What made it key was the fact that all nations used gold, they all held gold, physical gold. And so they faced deflationary pressures when they spent and imported too much. Where did that system go? Well, the Great Depression ended it. Mm-hmm. it we, uh, we need, you know, and then the wars, really World War I kind of started the end because we, we temporarily went off gold and so did England and so did other nations. And so won, whenever they returned to gold after World War I, they, England specifically, did not want to go through a painful deflationary process which would have been necessary for them to go back on the gold standard at their old price ratios. They call them, they set it at par, which basically meant the value of their pound prior to leaving the gold standard. They want to return to that same valuation after printing up all the money they did for the war would have required this painful deflationary process. And they just weren't into having that to, going through that. And so this kind of led to some imbalances, which kicked off the great depression. That's make, make this long story short. During the Great Depression, that's when FDR seized the, the gold and severed the link domestically with uh, with the dollar and gold. So if you were a citizen, you could no longer go to your bank and redeem. That was ended. And then they redefined the value of the gold to be $30 or $35 an ounce, which devalued the dollar, made which made our exports cheaper for other nations and encouraged spending. It was kind of like a QE program in that time, right? And this leads us to a point where we have the wars and then the dust settles. It's clear that the, Brit- the British aren't going to be the center of the monetary universe anymore, that the United States had taken over that role. And so a new monetary and we had left the gold standard globally. Right. And some nations returned and it, it, there was a real disaster with the Great Depression. That was global. And so all these nations felt they needed to print money to pay to pay for social services, to pay, have a welfare state, to you know various things. So gold, the gold standard just wasn't going to be a viable option going forward. So there was this new conference, Bretton Woods, and what they came up with, and oh, John Maynard Keynes, by the way, was very influential and in, and in kind of directing and and uh, steering this whole thing and what what were to come out of it. But the result was was known as Bretton Woods, and it was a a uh, global currency regime where the dollar the US dollar was treated as a reserve good as gold by foreign nations and there was agreements that you know foreign trade would be done in dollars settled in dollars and this was the beginning of the swift payment system and in that whole infrastructure and this put the united states in a position to well okay let I me mean, rewind the dollar was still be, was defined as uh 30 or 35 dollars an ounce of gold uh, and then we were we were holding i believe a certain percentage i don't remember the number but a certain percentage of our of our currency was backed by gold and foreign central banks had the uh, the ability to redeem whenever whenever really they wanted but we were but we were very clear to make to make it obvious that we did not want we did not encourage redemption we we encouraged people to hold the dollars right obviously so for a long time the united states had a situation where because, because of the lack of dollars, which were needed to be reserves to fund the other banking systems loans, there was a shortage of, of currency, a shortage of, of collateral, essentially. This meant that the United States could print up all these dollars, they'd go overseas, we'd get the goods and services in trade, and we would never have to really give up much because we could just kind of inflate our way to growth because the, there was a home, there was a demand for these dollars overseas. Well, eventually that, that ran out. This is how Bretton Woods comes undone. The United States runs trade deficits after trade deficits, but none of that, that specific price flow mechanism we talked about earlier didn't kick in because gold didn't have to leave our borders. Only paper dollars did. So we just kept importing and importing and running up debts and printing more and living, living like an empire. And that worked right up until those banks no longer wanted to hold those dollars. They didn't want to hold any more. They, they, enough's enough. We have all we need. So they started redeeming them. And they started in uh, France, uh, Charles de Gaulle, president of France, was one of the key instigators of this of this switch to, to, to redeeming the dollars. And, the, and once he did it, a lot of other nations saw that, well, France is going to cash in, we better cash in too. And so you get this run-of-the-bank kind of scenario where all these foreign banks are trying to cash in their dollars for gold. And that led to a crisis. And in 1971, 50-something years ago, Nixon solved the crisis by, by ending Bretton Woods and declaring that the dollar was no longer going to have any relationship to gold internationally or any other way. And that was the beginning of the what we call the fiat era, where all, all currencies are fiat currencies that fluctuate against each other with flexible exchange rates. We don't have fixed exchange rates very much at all. Maybe some minor currency countries do, but it's mostly a flexible exchange rate regime. And um, and it's all fiat, and that's and that's how we got and how we got here is a really really poorly designed substitute for the classical gold standard, which we called Bretton Woods.
1: There's also talks now of a second Bretton Woods, and I want to um, discuss this a little bit. I don't know how much you guys know, but the idea, um, and it's a lot about CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies, and how we we quote we. The, the people of Brenton Woods, the, the appointed masters of coin or whatever, I, <laughs> they are going to set the new world order when it comes to economics and monetary policy using these central bank digital currencies uh, to do so. Uh, I think maybe this is a concern uh, for some, uh, especially when we have cryptocurrencies that we can turn to that are decentralized marketplaces already. Bitcoin's a fantastic alternative to gold. It does all the same things, and you can transfer it instantly. But what does what would a second Bretton Woods? What do you guys think would that mean for all of this, for all of us, knowing well, what we know about
2: right. the past? Yeah. Well, to the my first in, in, uh, reaction to that is to think about the loss of privacy that that is going to come with it. I know that's not a directly a macro thing, but it's it's something that I think about the central bank digital currency it's going to be obviously transparent and every every transaction will be tracked and, and easy to, to follow. So just like Bitcoin is, right? Or other public blockchains. But the difference is we're not registering our wallets, whereas CBDC, we'll, I'm sure it will be a registered product, right? Somehow. So that's my first instinct. Uh, my first reaction is just to say, okay, I, I have privacy issues with that. And I don't feel like it's all, I don't really feel like it's that good of an what are they solving? You know, why, why do they need this? What, what problem is it solving? Now, I can see why what, what problem Bitcoin and uh, private stable coins and other cryptos solve. Obviously, that, that's a whole other top topic, but, but what problem is this solving for the central bank? They don't, do they have a problem keeping up with their ledgers? Is there a trust issues? You know, I don't understand what, what we're gaining. I, I feel like they're just trying to compete with, with something they think that is a threat, and they don't understand why it's a threat, yeah. and it's not a threat because it's digital. Visa has digital money. We've had digital money for a long time. I think it counts digital. Like the Fed needs to realize it's not about it being digital. Just because you created a ledger doesn't does not that's not innovation. <laughs> We've had ledgers for a long time. You know, it. They just don't get it. What the point is, and I guess they're, you you know you're they're paid not to. So and that makes sense. But, so that my uh the other thing is, well this would probably on a po- let's let's have a positive knowledge of financial flows and the velocity of money and how often money trend turns over that's like the crucial question that the fed and the other central banks are trying to look trying to answer like what what is what's the flow what's the flow of money going to be doing tomorrow that that's the quest that's the perennial questions right and and they can from that extra, extrapolate things about unemployment and gdp and other and inflation and and so on so Having a CBDC with like a real time de- screen desktop where you can see exactly what's going on in the economy with the money and, and the flows of money, that could be that could be useful from a planning perspective. I don't know how, how useful it would be.
1: Well, I think when it comes to a planning perspective, you get into, um, well, okay, there's some human rights violation-y stuff on, on the horizon there, sure. In America... I'm assuming the Fourth Amendment illegal search and seizure. If they can just kind of search your wallet whenever they want, and maybe freeze the funds, which would, they would be able to, like look at the digital yuan mm-hmm. in China, they can absolutely do that. And that's a, that's a whole different regime. I, I entirely understand that, but um, they can freeze people's assets. They can see how what they're spending it on exactly, and then stop them from buying certain things if it's you know in in the mm-hmm. government's uh, interest. The most concerning part. Is that they can put a time limit or a time bomb on your money, where you have to spend it in 30 days to incentivize, you know, uh, economic growth or, or
2: churn. But what, like, are you- no, you're that's you put your finger on on what it is, I think, right there because we're seeing in Europe the beginning of negative interest rates, um, deposit haircuts, which is what this is. Like you, you know, you, you we're taking 10 percent off the top of your balance. That that's a thing, and then the future is what kind of what you're hinting towards is like, you have to spend this now or the next 30 days, or you're going to have a 10% haircut or things like that. So, yeah, I feel like that this, this would facilitate this, this technology would facilitate those kinds of nudges. And that's definitely problematic. There's nothing good.
0: Would you agree this is the height of monetary policy insanity? I mean, it, I mean, think <laughs> about this. If you're trying to follow the evolution of monetary history and how we've we've jumped from one bumbling experiment after another, if you know, you look at the central bank, the the Fed, and all of these um, these. Uh, money market engineers, how many, the Great Depression, uh, depression after depression, recession after recession, and you keep hearing about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer even today. And this is with having a monetary system that's been the most controlled, really, uh, of, of any that you can think of being removed from gold and silver and commodities. So why would you take people today who are coming from a historical group, a class of people who have not known what to do with this, institution called money, experimenting with interest rate, experimenting with printing money, experimenting. And now there's a new technology and what you're just like, oh, don't worry, we're going to start using this to, to to make even more tools to try to to try to manipulate the money and what we can do to the supply even more. It's like you guys need to quit trying to manipulate the supply and let go of the control because it hasn't, you're trying hard, you're squeezing, squeezing harder. And it's it's it looks ridiculous. And it looks ridiculous to anyone who understands what blockchain technology is because. you have a technology that's removed the need for trust and you have other people creating digital ledgers like ryan said it's not the the digital ledger isn't the isn't the um achievement it's using digital ledgers in a secure trustless decentralized way that's the achievement so having a digital ledger that's even more manipulated than the previous legal tender fiat currency systems we could have ever imagined that are the most orwellian systems uh where where ledgers people's wallets can be shut off they can have time uh, time locks, time bombs set on their reserves that they have to spend certain amounts, certain classes of people can have money given to them. Certain classes of people can have money taken away. It can, you know, the level of manipulation and control is, is, I mean, it it would be, it would be to the most Orwellian system I, I could imagine. However, you move away from these CBDC, uh, central bank style, uh, uh, centralized ledgers you look at things like Bitcoin and uh, protocols built with smart contracts that allow for uh, the time value of money, allow for interest and remove the counterparty risk that we see in with modern banking institutions. Well, that's now. Now, when you understand how the technology works, you realize that we don't need a Bretton Woods. My whole point with this is that the whole, we that it, it, it's like you need a Bretton Woods for a CBDC because that's a centralized ledger. But the whole purpose of decentralized secured ledgers is um, removing. People, this, the supply is set. We haven't, you don't need to worry about controlling the interest rate or the inflation of money because we know how much is going to be minted every year. It's going to be halved at this time. And there's this much that's going to be made. And then this is going to happen. And that's a level of transparency that the population has never known. And that's the potential we have. We have a potential of moving towards a direction of the most transparent, trusting, open money uh, institution that we've ever seen or you can go the opposite which would be forget m1 m2 m3 accounting ledgers if you move to this cbdc digital ledger it's going to be the most black box the most bit connect system you could never imagine you can never imagine the levels of control that could be implemented on populations on individual wallets on whatever i mean it's just it's ridiculous and to think. You look at all these psychological experiments to think, because I don't think government exists outside of, I mean, we use it in a lazy way. I just, I don't mean, I don't think it exists. It's just, it's just nothing more than men and women going to work in different jobs that we put in a market we call government. Like if you work at the post office, okay, you work for the government, you work at the Marine Corps, you work for the government, you know, you go make lemonade at the street corner, you don't work for the government right so but it's still just men and women going to work every day and how, how to figure things out it's not some it's not some you know magical class of alien beings that put on suits a certain way and then they go make decisions for the best interest of others they have no personal needs or wants of their own and even if they did they're all pericles it's like an order work for the government you must pass the pericles uh test you know so um Yeah, I think that's why I love us, how we get an opportunity to get together and just talk about this stuff with with other people because it's a knowledge. It just comes down to a knowledge and understanding. It's like fire. And when fire first came and people figured it out, you you can use fire to um, burn a, a house down if you don't understand. You can burn a whole forest down if you don't understand how to control it properly. But if you don't have to be afraid of it, like that's the way I look at blockchain just like it could be Orwellian. It could burn a whole forest down, but It can also be a beautiful thing that you control and you have in your home. Shucks, if you control it, you can have fire on your stove, heating your water. You can have fire all over your house, you know, and and it's okay because it's controlled and you're using it to cook your food and to heat your house and do other things. But if it's not controlled and you don't understand it, it can be the most devastating and harmful thing. And that's kind of where we're at with blockchain. It's this Promethean fire that can be used to not only liberate us from archaic and draconian monetary systems and other maybe systems of of rule and and other institutions uh, and move to more transparent, open, egalitarian, ethical, um, equitable, uh, definitely in in other ways. So, and, and I guess what's beautiful is that We're all here watching this new emerging technology. What I keep thinking about is how we're literally able to talk about Bretton Woods and talk about money and talk about the choice. Hayek would have dreamed to have been alive during the time to see a technology exist where you could look at a competing monetary institution, not from a, from a, from a legal, legal tender, decreed top-down approach, but this emerging and evolutionary,
2: Yeah. 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 Well, I was going to say I was going to touch on what you said. Um, that that blockchain has the potential to be this great liberating thing, but it also has the potential to be an a ins- tool of enslavement to the extent that it puts a a uh, panopticon on our on our financial activities. Right? I love that word. <laughs> anyway, define,
1: define that word really uh, quick. <laughs>
2: panopticon. That's like uh, something that's all seeing. It's a, oh, it's a okay. style of prison. It's a prison design. If you, if you want to Google it, okay. it's a prison design that puts the, the guards, at the very center of a giant donut mm-hmm. so that they can see everybody in every cell. But um, so yeah, it, it has the potential to be a, a tool of, of, of privacy destruction, but it also has a tool to be a liberate to, it has a potential to be a tool that liberates us. What, how it turns, which way it goes depends on our culture and our beliefs and you know, we when we went to voice and exit, Lucas and myself, we went a few years ago. We were in the middle of a bunch of people who had revolutionary goals and ideas about how to change society. And there was a lot of emphasis on blockchain, seasteading, various technological advancements, which were going to be which were being argued are, are a path to freeing humanity. So what that means is, is that you have to get to a place in your own, your own spiritual thinking about other people and their value and, and their value of their rights and their autonomy before some tool is just going to be like a, 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 some kind of saving grace because if you, cause the tool can be used in various ways. And if you don't have the right ends in mind, the right if you haven't, you know, ascended and become concerned about others, right. Is equally as yourself then society might not choose the right path for the tool. It'll be, it'll be used, you know, another way. So essentially the idea here is that tools, new tools of liberation aren't enough. There's this spiritual cultural uh, layer that also has to evolve with them or it, or we just continue what, what we're doing.
1: Yeah, well said. Guys, hey, I think this was an awesome discussion on competing visions of monetary order, looking back at the past to understand how these, like you guys say these egalitarian, equitable, harmonious tools uh, that are built on blockchain that are maybe coming in other ways, but you know, for, for the sake of the show, built on blockchain. How we'll get there How and, and how we can look at the past to realize, hey, wasn't great before or it was maybe but things got changed and people came in and dipped their hand their not so invisible hand into the market yeah i think it's a really exciting time like you guys said to be alive and um thank you guys for for joining me in this discussion today uh wouldn't have been much of a discussion by my own but uh, i appreciate appreciate you guys
2: coming by always have a fun thank you thank you brother all right see you guys